All right, Veritas, how are we doing today? Pretty good. It's a little rainy out, nothing wrong with that though. A little rain's always good for the crops and all of those things. Yes, my name is Cole Williams. I work for our college ministry here, the Salt Company, which has been a huge joy because Salt played a huge role in my growth and my relationship with Jesus in college, and it was Salt Company and Veritas that was actually my first Christian community that I ever really had. And so it's unbelievable to me that I'm able to be up here and just talk about the Word of God with you all because, man, it's just so good to talk about it. And we're in a great, we're in a great section of Scripture, um, doing the whole Romans 6 through 8 thing. And then even today, as we're in Romans 7, 7 through 25, I, uh, I've just been thinking a lot about this this year, so it's cool to get to come up here and, and talk about it. Um, but yeah, as I said, I work for Salt Company, and that kind of means that I am sort of perpetually in this state of being around people who are in that time of their life that is described as discovering yourself, finding out who you are, what you want to do, this big point of figuring out who are you going to be as a human being. And that's a lot of pressure to put on a person. But the thing is, that, that, that doesn't actually stop after college, does it? Because a lot of you guys, if you go on Facebook or Instagram, you're going to see posts like this. You want to pop it up there? It's coming at a great, great build-up for it. It says, oh, previous one. There we go. It says, repeat after me. I am physically, mentally, and emotionally ready to enter a new phase in my life. I'm ready to grow and to get better. Some of you guys maybe share posts like that yourself. You think it's very motivating, and it kind of is. But a big part of it is it reveals that there's this desire for personal growth and working towards some standard that we have in our minds. Or maybe you kind of switch from that phase of personal growth and you enter into a phase of saying, don't let anyone tell you who you are or place boundaries on you. Be your own person. Learn to accept yourself for who you are because perfection is impossible. You're just going to have to deal with that. Or a personal favorite that I saw in doing my research for this sermon says, I am a power couple with myself. I love us. We work hard. Kind of a combination of the two, right? Personal growth. We're working hard together. And just also saying, man, we're just so great people, aren't we? So, yeah, you know, both of those ideas reveal an absolutely profound truth that maybe you guys have never thought of. And if you haven't, I'm sorry, I'm going to blow your world. It's that we're not perfect, right? We know that there's something inside of us that isn't perfect, like we would maybe want it to be. Or at the very least, we know that there are things inside of other people that we know aren't perfect in the way that we would want them to be. So productivity and personal growth culture reveal that we need to strive towards an idea of perfection that we're not currently at. Personal acceptance culture says, man, that's an impossible standard and we can't, make our, we can't get ourselves there. So the way that we cope with that is just by accepting that we are who we are and we're just going to have to rejoice in that, revel in that. That is amazing. And what's interesting about this is that as Christians, in a lot of ways we would agree with the premise behind some of these points, that we're not perfect, that there is something inside of us and something inside of this world 
that is not as it should be and is not as it was created to be. The difference is that we know that the reason that that is true is because there's sin in the world. Right? If you've been coming here for a while, you know the whole Adam and Eve story. God created the world perfect. Adam and Eve sinned against God. It introduces brokenness that we now experience all around us all the time. And that now is a part of us. But here's the beauty of what we've been talking about so far in Romans 6 and the first part of Romans 7, is that that does not define the Christian anymore. That brokenness and sinfulness does not define the Christian. Jesus died, and if you believe in him, then you are free from that bondage to sin. For the first time in your life, you are able to desire good things that are pleasing to God and to live in a way that's pleasing to him. But here's the problem. As we leave this place and we still sin, maybe you're leaving the parking lot and somebody cuts you off as you're heading out of Veritas and you get pretty angry at them. Or maybe you go home and one of your kids spills SpaghettiOs all over their brand new clothes and you kind of yell at them in rage because, man, this is just another problem that I have in my life. Or maybe you make it through Sunday and you're perfectly sinless and awesome, but then you go into work on Monday and everyone around you is gossiping and ripping to shreds somebody who is in the office. You're like, I don't want to do it, but it would really help me fit in. So you just join right in. Or maybe you're walking down the street, you're at the gym, and you look lustfully after another man or woman. All of us, experience some sort of ongoing sin, even after being Christians. So what gives? We've just been talking about how if you're in Christ, you're free from bondage to sin. Am I free from it or not, if I'm still sinning? Because it would seem to me like if I'm free, then I should be sinless and perfect but that hasn't been our personal experience. And this is the connection between Christians and non-Christians. It's this question of how do we solve the problem of brokenness in the world and in us, and more specifically, how do we solve the problem of sin? For the world, the non-Christian world around us, they are looking at that perspective, that question, on how do we solve it based on what we can observe and do here. But for Christians, we're saying, man, I still sense sin in me, and I hate it. And I want to do something about it, but I don't know what to do because it still keeps happening. And if we're going to answer that question of how do we solve the sin problem, then there's two things that we have to know. And the first thing that we're going to have to know is we're going to have to know the infamy of sin. We have to know what sin is famous for. So if you guys turn to Romans 7 with me, otherwise it's going to be on the screen. Starting in verse 7, Paul says, what should we say then? This is in light of what he had just said, what Jeff preached over last week about the law and being free from the law. He says, what should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me 
coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life again, and I died. The commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and just and good. Therefore, did what is good become death to me? Absolutely not. On the contrary, sin, in order to be recognized as sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that through the commandment, sin might become sinful beyond measure. If we're going to solve, if we're going to answer this question of how do we solve the problem of sin, we have to know what sin is famous for. And Paul starts out this part of Romans by addressing an objection that some of us might have if we've been reading and following along in Romans 6 and 7 up until this point. Is the law sin? Because if the law exposed me to what was right and what was wrong, and I ended up sinning because I now knew this, then didn't the law provoke me to sin? Isn't the law the source of that sin? This is what Paul is asking, because a lot of us, we might be thinking it. What's the point of it? If it's just going to produce evil in me. But you also have to think about this. If you go to the doctor to get a routine checkup, and they say, we have to do an x-ray on you to just see if everything's okay in your body, and you find out that you have stage four cancer, and the x-ray gives you that horrible news, is the x-ray evil? Or did the x-ray reveal an already present evil inside of you that was seeking to kill you? And it was well on its way to doing it. I think when we look at how the law is described here and we look at what the purpose of the law is, is we see that the law shows us the reality of sin's presence in us and also what its intention is and how far it'll go. And Paul says that sin used the, the commandment, for example, of do not covet as a way to produce coveting of every kind. So sin was already present, and it was waiting to seize an opportunity to be more present, to be more sinful. So Paul sort of describes sin here as something that's always looking for an occasion to be even more sinful, to be sinful beyond measure, to be as rebellious as it possibly can be to God's good law. He describes it in verse 8 as something that's always waiting to seize an opportunity. He describes it in verse 9 as something that's parasitic and looking to use something that's good for its own evil purposes. He looks at verse 10, and he says that sin is deceptive. We look at verse 13. Paul says that sin wants to be sinful beyond measure. Sin is not content just sitting and coexisting with us, but it wants to run as far away from the direction of God's good design for our planet and for us as it possibly can be. It's the goal of sin to run as far in the direction of our own personal lordship as we can get. A.W. Tozer has a really good quote kind of saying, kind of talking about this. He says, 
Sin has many manifestations, but its essence is one. A moral being created to worship before the throne of God sits on the throne of his own selfhood and from that elevated position declares, I am. That is sin in its concentrated essence. Yet, because it is unnatural, or because it is natural, it appears to be good. And we can agree with what Tozer is saying here. Because if you have any independent people in the room, kind of like me, one thing that you will notice for sure happens is you could be thinking, oh man, I should do the dishes, right? Maybe you're wanting to be a good housemate for your spouse or for your kids or for your roommates. And then somebody asks you or tells you that you need to do the dishes. And what happens? Inside of you, it starts to flare up. You're like, I don't want to do them anymore. You were already thinking that you should do the dishes, but now because somebody told you that you should do them, you don't want to do them. Why? Because them telling you to do something threatens your own lordship over your life, and you don't want to let that go. Also, when I'm saying you, I'm really just using personal examples from my own life here. So don't worry about (laughs) if I'm attacking you here. I think a lot of us can relate to it. And that's exactly how sin works, right? It promises us the throne of God. It says, if you indulge in me, you will have everything you could possibly want, and you will be the ruler of this world. It deceives us into thinking it's good, and it ends up working and growing into some unimaginable beast that completely takes over. Why? Why is sin seeking to do this? What is the end goal of sin if not to only exist more? Well, Paul says in verse 11, he says, For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, it fooled us, and it killed him. He says, it killed me. The ultimate goal and intention of sin, why it wants to be as rebellious as it possibly can be, is because it knows that that's running as far in the direction of our own death as it can possibly go. The ultimate goal of sin is the death of God's image bearer, of you and me. It tells us it's something good. It tells us it's something natural. But really, it's leading to our demise. And it's kind of like a kid, if he's running towards a busy street and his parents are saying no, but he wants to be an adult and he wants to be a grown-up and make his own decisions, but really what he's running to is his own demise. That's what it's like. It promises this self-sufficiency that it can't deliver. And it might not actually be an immediate jump for all of us in this room to some like really severe, obviously intense sin like adultery or like embezzling millions of dollars or anything like that. But I heard an illustration one time that I thought was really helpful for it, and they said there's two ways you can get off the top of a skyscraper. You can either jump, or you can take the stairs. And almost all of us in this room would choose to take the stairs, and it leads to the exact same destination. Little by little, compromise by compromise, sin is working to get what sin's end goal is, which is our death. And so what else is sin famous for but being the thing that leads to our destruction? So how would you answer Paul's original question? 
Is the law sin? Did God provoke us to sin by giving us the law? Or, instead, did the law serve as a sort of flare gun warning us that there was some destructive thing inside of us that was actively fooling us into thinking that it didn't exist? Maybe, and I would say I think this is true, the law was showing us just how evil and real sin is and just how present in our flesh and bones it is. And if we want to understand what we're up against and trying to answer this question of how do we solve the problem of sin in the world, how do we solve the problem of sin in us, then we have to know this first. We have to know what sin is famous for, and sin is famous for killing humans. We see it all the time. You don't have to look far to see that. Sin is serious. It's more cunning than we think that it is. And that's the first thing we need to know. And the second thing we need to know is we need to know the feebleness of our own flesh. We need to know the feebleness of the flesh. If you continue on in verse 14, Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold as a slave to sin. For I do not understand what I am doing, because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh, For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the things that I want to do, or do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one that does it, but it is the sin that lives in me. So I discover this law. When I want to do what's good, evil is present with me. From my inner self, I delight in God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body waging waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. Coming off the heels of what Paul's talked about in chapters 6 and 7, you can sense his frustration here, can't you? I don't know what's going on. I know that I'm free from this. I know that this is seeking to kill me. I know what the ultimate goal of sin is. Romans 6 says it's a cruel master... Paul is thinking about this, he's understanding this, and yet, there's still ongoing sin. That's frustrating. It's like he's saying, man, I don't know what's going on here. Because I've been bought by Christ, I've been born again, and yet I still see this present. It's kind of like working through it real time, and we know exactly what Paul is talking about here, don't we? There have been like a lot of times, it just in my Christian walk, I think especially recently, and this has been super dumb, so I'm going to expose myself a little bit to you guys here, where I'll be going about my normal day and... Like, I won't have, like, messed up too bad recently. 
And this thought will pop into my head, and I know it's ridiculous, but this thought will pop into my head, and it's like, man, I'm kind of getting this thing figured out. I'm kind of like, I kind of have life figured out a little bit. Like, I, I know how to not, like, hurt people too bad. I know how to not say something too dumb. I can kind of watch my tongue a little bit. And it's no coincidence that almost immediately after that thought pops into my head, I say something really dumb, and I end up saying something that makes someone not feel good, or I do something that's really sinful. That maybe isn't like a vocal thing that I'm saying, but it's certainly really present in my heart. So there's this like act of sanctification that's happening where God is showing us more of himself and making us more into the image of his son. But also, we still live in a world that's influenced by sin. And we still live in this sinful flesh, and we want to love Jesus more. We want to run after holiness. We want to live in a way that's pleasing to God. And we are, because God is growing us into that image. And yet we still find ourselves experiencing these effects of a fallen world. And maybe you're like a really, really new Christian, and you were ready to take on the world when you gave your life to Christ, right? You're like, oh man, this is new. I can do it. I'm free. And the gossiping thing we talked about earlier happens, right? You go into work the next day. You're around all the people you were around before you became a Christian. And they say old habits die hard where they were born, right? You start to feel the effects of sin even in your new Christian life. Or maybe you've been a Christian for years and years and years now, and you used to always struggle with finding your worth and your approval in the opinions of other people, And when you became a Christian, by God's grace, you were freed from doing that in, like, the world around you. But then it started to pop up in these walls. There's in connection group, or once you're talking to someone in the foyer, and you want to say the really wise thing, so somebody's like, man, look at that guy, or look at that girl. They know what's going on. And there's, like, a legitimate desire in you to glorify God, or to, like, be a light for him. But there's also this part of you that wants to be praised for your own flesh, that wants to be praised for how smart you are, that wants to be praised for how good of a person you are. Remember, I'm saying you guys, I'm talking about all of us. (laughs) Whatever it is for you, we all know exactly what Paul's talking about here, because all of us, wherever we are in our walk with Jesus, We know that sin is present. We are extremely aware that in this flesh and bones that we have, we are not perfect. We're not. And so what does that mean? Am I actually a Christian if I'm still sinning? Well, in light of what Paul's been talking about until this point in Romans, am I actually saved? If I'm supposed to be free from bondage to sin, but I still find myself sinning on a regular basis, am I a born-again, spirit-indwelled believer of Jesus Christ? And I would say first, if you've never given your life to Jesus, if you've never been born again, then absolutely, you are not saved. That is true. And if that is you, you can do that right now. You can totally, 100% accept Jesus as your Lord right now and begin to follow him for the rest of your life, which is crazy 
It doesn't have to be some big thing that you come to to do that. You can do that right now. But I think that Paul's getting at something a little bit differently than somebody who is not already saved. I think he's getting at something a little bit more specific to the Christian life. Because look at what he's saying. He says he does not do what he wants to do, but does what he hates. It's no longer him doing it, but it's sin living in him. He's not doing the good that he wants to do, but is instead doing the evil that he does not want to do. And in his inner self, he delights in God's law, but in his body, he sees a different law, a law of sin and death. So let me ask you this. If you are not a born-again believer, if you are still totally depraved and dead in your sins, as we see in Ephesians 2 and elsewhere in the Bible, that we are before we come to know Jesus, is it possible for you to delight in God's law? Is it possible for you to want to do the things that God says is good? Well, we already know the deceptiveness of sin, that it wants to run as far away from God's good command as possible. Absolutely not. No person who doesn't love the Lord wants to do what's pleasing to the Lord. We just want to do what's pleasing to ourselves if we don't love him. But if you love Jesus and you want to walk in obedience to Jesus, but you're struggling with sin, that doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. The presence of sin doesn't necessarily mean that you're not a Christian. The presence of delighting in God's law is confirmation that you have been saved by him. And isn't that so crazy? That shows us that God is doing what he promised to do to make us more into the image of his son. That's amazing. Non-Christians don't have this war between delighting in God's law and delighting in the sins of the flesh inside of them at all. There's no war. It's completely one-sided towards the things of this world. But for the Christian, we know a different reality. But Paul's describing a frustration here. So if he's saying that he is still a Christian, then what is he getting at? Paul is showing us that even in our born-again state, our flesh is still weak and it's still impacted by sin because we are still in this life and we still live in a world that is impacted by sin. On our own strength, this means that we cannot solve the sin problem because we don't have our new bodies. We don't have our glorified state Yet, we can't save ourselves from the sin that's in us and the sin that's in the world, and our inability to perfectly follow the law of God, as we've been already talking about, proves that. It's almost like, did you guys ever have, like, siblings? I'm sure a lot of you in here had siblings. Or you went to daycare or some thing where you basically had a bully growing up, and somebody would grab your hand and start, like, hitting you, and they'd be like, why are you hitting yourself? Why are you hitting yourself? Why are you hitting yourself? Is... It's like technically you hitting yourself, but you don't want to be hitting yourself. It's somebody who's using your weak body, who's stronger than you, to cause damage to you, to your flesh. Because you're not strong enough to stop them from doing it. That's kind of what's going on here as Paul is describing it. Sin is really strong, and it's cunning, and it's deceptive, and our flesh, on our own strength, is not strong enough to stop it from doing its will. And harming us. And we see the culmination of Paul's realization of this and his frustration 
at its reality and his frustration and his hatred of sin in verse 24 when he says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Who's going to do it? Because when we look at the strength and the intentions of sin, and we see its effectiveness at what it's trying to do around the entire world, and when we look at the weakness of our own bodies against it, we can resonate with Paul's frustration and question here, can't we? Because we know I can't do it. We know that the world around us can't do it because it's full of people who match the exact same descriptions as us and imperfect fallen people. And as good as laws and justice can be in enforcing righteousness, we just spent this whole time talking about, <laughs> talking about how laws cannot make us righteous, how they cannot make us good. They can't solve the sin problem either. So what do you do? If nothing in all of creation can save us or solve the sin problem, it starts to get a little hopeless, doesn't it? If this is all we have, right? If this life, if this world is all we have, and if all we have is our own strength, then we will always lose that battle. And we have no hope unless this world is not all that there is, unless this life is not all that there is, and unless we realize and see what Paul says in verse 25. Who's going to rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I'm, or with my Mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. The only one who can possibly solve the problem of sin is Jesus Christ. Jesus solves the sin problem. Only Jesus can sanctify us and be the one who makes us not be defined by our sin, who can grow us more into an image of righteousness and holiness because that's what he has made us in him. It's kind of like, would you be able to wash a dirty dish with a dirty sponge? No. If it was all like greased up and had a bunch of food on it, it would just stay dirty. But if you tried washing a dirty dish with a clean sponge, of course you'd make it clean. Because the sponge isn't defiled by all the food and junk that's already on there. So it had to be someone who's perfect and righteous and good. And isn't that amazing? that he would have had every reason to run away because he wants to maintain his purity, but instead was so pure and holy and good that he came to clean us? To be the answer to all of creation's longing of what are we going to do about the sin problem? Because he wanted to? Because he loves us? One of the biggest lies we can fall into in our Christian walk, I think, I'm sure there's a lot of them, is to believe that Jesus forgives us of our sin when we first have our moments of salvation, but that then the rest of our lives 
is like up to us. That our sanctification is up to us, that our ongoing righteousness is up to us. As though Jesus was like, all right, here's a clean slate, now take care of it. The rest is up to you. And a lot of us practically live this way. As though the farther along we get in our Christian walk, the less grace that Jesus has for us and the less present that he is in our lives. But if you look at Romans 5, and if you look elsewhere at how God works with his people throughout Scripture, oh man, Romans 5 says that if God had grace for us while we were sinners, how much more grace must he have for us now that we're saved and that we're children of his? If while we were actively rebelling against him, had no desire for what was good, God saved us? How much more grace does he have for us now? As we're stumbling our way through this life, on our way to eternity. If you're in Christ, God saved you because he wanted to. And God intends to finish and to see, see it through to the end. To see you through to eternity. So this is good, right? We know that only Jesus can solve the sin problem. That had to be the lowest hanging fruit you guys would ever get for a question to start a sermon. But practically, what does that actually look like? How do we live that out? Well, the first thing that we do, and can you imagine if we did this? The first thing that we do is we be a people of confession. We be a people who are still struggling with sin and confessing it in the body of believers And we surround ourselves with other Christians and we walk this Christian life because we're in a group of people who know, man, we're weak and we need help. And this is a means of grace that the Lord has given us to strengthen us in him. And as people who have seen and known this goodness of Jesus to rescue us from our bodies of death, we keep fighting sin. And we keep fighting for holiness, but not on our own. Because Jesus is with us and he wants to sanctify us. Even if we don't know that it's happening. So back in, back in October, I got to preach for the first time at our school year salt company. And I started to struggle with just wanting people to like praise me and tell me how good of a job that I did. And if you look, I don't know if any of you guys can see this. I have this tattoo on my arm that says Carpe Diem. And that following Sunday, the whole point of the sermon was about how this idea of seizing the day and that this life is all that we have is totally wrong and bad. And so I'm walking into the church and I'm like, all right, I just preached. And then it's like, sweet. Because I was losing that battle with pride. And God saw that and was like, you know what you need? You need to not think about yourself so much. And you just need to sit under the word and you need to worship with other believers. And I, didn't, I wasn't like praying for that. But God cares about our holiness and our sanctification and he just did it. And that's so amazing. Uh, so we'll find that as we continue on in our Christian walks and we're conformed more into the image of God, our hatred of sin will grow stronger because we're continuing to grow in Christ-likeness. 
and we love the things he loves more, and we hate the things he hates more. And that makes us resonate with Paul's frustration here, doesn't it? As he continues to struggle against sin, as he sees more and more the goodness of Jesus. So the first thing is we be a people of confession. The second thing is we be a people of compassion. We have compassion on sinners because we absolutely understand how they could do what they do. Because we're like, man, I get the allure of sin. I get how strong and powerful and deceptive it can be. And I get how weak our flesh and bones are. I get it. I've experienced it. I'm in it right now. But having compassion doesn't mean being passive. And out of love, we remind those people and we remind ourselves, again, the importance of community, of the freedom that we have from sin and encouraging them to live in that freedom, but also the grace of Jesus Christ and the way that he is growing us more into his image. And this is grace that's available day after day. So we walk arm in arm with believers around us and we have compassion on sinners because we get it and we lift each other up when sin's attacking us. Because it's going to. Probably is right now for a lot of you guys. Actually, for every single one of us, it's definitely attacking us. So we be a people of compassion. And the third thing, we be a people of hope. Because we, I mean, this is hard. Struggling with sin is hard. And if we know that it's strong and if we know that we're weak, then it's, it would be really easy to just throw in the towel and say, what's the point? But this isn't all that there is. This life is not, is not all that there ever will be. Because if you're in Christ, you know that a day is coming when Jesus will return and we will be brought to heaven and he will do away with sin entirely and we will never have to have the struggle between a sinful flesh and a justified, righteous reality that's true of us, we'll just be living in perfect goodness in the presence of our Creator forever. Never again to be struggling with this. So we be a people of hope because we know in the grand scheme of things, for those who are in Christ, this is such a small fraction of eternity. An increasingly smaller fraction of eternity as it continues on. Uh, we're just a people of hope in Christ. And this is just because we know that Jesus saw us in our sinful and broken state and he came and he died on the cross for our sins. He lived the perfect life. He was killed and he rose from the dead on the third day so that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. And we're going to take communion today just with each other, which is awesome. And we're going to remember this reality that Jesus has made us new. There's gluten-free options for people who have a gluten sensitivity, but as we're doing this, let's remember Christ's body, this bread that we're going to take, was broken for us. Christ's blood, this juice that we're going to drink, his blood was shed for us. And if you are a believer, a born-again believer of Jesus, I would just invite you guys to take communion with each other and to think about this reality of how good our God has been and that he sees us in our losing battle with sin. 
and comes and rescues us from our body of death. And if you, if you don't know Jesus, just think about it. How amazing would it be if today your whole life changed because you accepted the invitation for salvation? Would you guys pray with me? Jesus, thank you so much for bringing us here, and thank you that we just get to open up your word and spend time with you and worship you, God, and we thank you that, yeah, we are broken and sinful people, and God, we are losing the battle against sin nonstop, but also, God, you're stronger than that, and, and your love for us outweighs our weakness and sin strength. And so, Jesus, we just praise you that you rescue us from this body of death. And we just ask that we would just rejoice in that, that we would rejoice in our weakness because it highlights your strength, that we would rejoice in your goodness to love us and die for us. And God, I pray that we would just keep going. I pray that we'd be a people of confession, a people of compassion, and a people of hope. Jesus, that we might just see you more and love you more. Thank you, Lord. We love you, we need you, and we praise you always. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.